Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Pastor Jeff Stewart. From uh, 1998 to 2001, my family and I lived in the Denver area, Denver, Colorado. And while we were there, we went to a church similar to this called uh, Creekside Community Church. The lead pastor there was a guy named Jim Piper. He had moved from, um, I think it was Chico or Chino, I get them mixed up, but uh, down south. Was that Chico? It's not? It's down, down in the L.A. area, and it starts with C.A. It has an O on it. So, uh, uh, he, But he uh, often, when he uh, gave his messages and stuff, he would give an illustration that stuck out. I don't remember a whole lot of his message, but I remember most of his illustrations. One illustration he gave, he always talked about In-N-Out Burger, In-N-Out Burger in California. So when we were getting ready to move from Colorado, California, I was looking forward to getting a part of the culture, a taste, a literal taste of the culture at In-N-Out Burger. So the very first one I ever walked into was that one off of Travis. And, and I looked at the menu board and I thought, what's the big deal? They just got a double, double cheeseburger, hamburger, french fries. There's not a whole lot to this. So, uh, of course, I, uh, I ordered the double, double, double meat, double cheese. Number one down here and stuff. You look at that. Ugh, I'm gonna go get one right now. Going on lunch here, isn't it? Pretty soon. Let's go get uh, in and out. But the first time I've been in that, wow, that's really good. Fresh meat, fresh potatoes, fresh, all that stuff. Now, this is really good. Well, I, I didn't know, and maybe you didn't know this. Maybe some of you do. That's not all that's on their menu. They have a secret menu. Anybody know that they have a secret menu? Well, you can get something better. You can actually get something better than just that. Even though that's good, you can add to it. You can get any combination you want. You can get two burgers with four patties or four things of cheese, or you can get four pieces of meat with two cheese, or you can get just the cheese, or you can get a, a veggie burger, or you can get something that's protein wrapped in lettuce, no bun. You can ask just about anything you want. It looks like that, but you can actually get something that you think is better. And that's what I'd like for us to think about. Something's better. We are, in America, a, a consumeristic society. We're always looking for something that's better. That which is best, something we want to choose, because we opt for that when we make our choices. We make them every day. And most often, we opt for the best or try to find something that is better. How do we determine that? How do we determine that? Well, we normally operate from a horizontal plane, and we're influenced by standards that we've adopted for ourselves based on the culture and the mindset around us. Remember growing up as a kid, all these commercials they had were new and improved. It's better now. And they found out through investigative reports it was the same thing, but they just put that on there so you would buy it. We, that we want something better. We want best. And we want to know what that is. We try to determine what that is. We always default to what we think is the best when it comes to making choices, but the best. And what is better is very often Subjective. Really appreciated uh, Brian's prayer this morning about what pleases God. It's not always what is pleasing you know, to us and vice versa. What we think is good, we discover and we learn from his word that there are other ways of thinking about things. That's what he came to teach us. It's typical when we read God's word. And I want us to look at a lot of passages this morning. So if you have your Bible, have the Bible ready. Or if you have the pew Bible there, I'll give you the page number on that, in that brown Bible. But God very often places a high value, I've discovered, and you have discovered as well, on that which we would not normally and naturally be inclined 
to esteem or to treasure. And there's plenty in here, and there's plenty of examples of that as we look at some passages. But I want to give you an advisory. If we look at this, I want to give you a caution. Your mindset can be altered. I know. Because as we're being transformed, I'm being transformed, you're being transformed, our mindset can be altered and changed, and that's what God wants to do. That's exactly what God wants to do. These three passages, they may seem like they're just kind of jumping around, but they correlate to what what we want to look at this morning about what is best, what is better. First, I want you to turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, very early, page 179 in the Brown Bible, and look at verses uh, chapter 7, verses 1, and then we'll read verses 6 through 9. This is the history of God's people. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering, this is Israel, to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And I won't add that joke, mosquito bites this morning for you. (laughs) See, it still works. It still works. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. For you, Israel, are a holy people, a separated people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? Chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It defies logic, but it's his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than all the other peoples, for you were the fewest. You were the least considered of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Seemed logical to go with him. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. That's what I want us to know this morning. We'll end up with that as well. Know that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to thousand generations of those who love him, and keep his commands. I hope that's us this morning. I hope that's us this morning. What is better? What is the best? What is it we opt for? It's not always what you expect it to be when you look in here. That's why we get transformed. That's why we change. But there's something we need to know in making decisions. We all, every one of us in this room, have standards. And we think those standards are correct. We have certain standards. They all differ. But the problem is we think those standards are correct. And if we think they're correct, we think they're best, don't we? We think they're better. I know I do. That's usually where I have a conflict. This is the way to do it. Like driving from one place to another. Why are you turning that way? There's a better way to go this way. Well, you just drive home your way and I'll drive home my way. We all think we have standards. We think that they're correct. We think that they are better. I'll give you an illustration. I've often referred to uh, our family. Uh, about every two, three years, we go to um, Ocean Isle Beach, North Carolina. I know Dave and Debbie King have been there before. Great place, fun place to be. If you ever want to go have a good family vacation, Ocean Isle Beach, North Carolina. And not too far south of there, there's a, there's a town right near the South Carolina border called Calabash. They have seafood. It's just a seafood heaven. They've got all kinds of restaurants. They've got Mary's Restaurant, Larry's Restaurant, Norm's Restaurant, Penelope, Gertrude, all these, you know, seafood restaurants. And you have to, you have to choose. You have your choice of which one's better. Oh, we did that one three years ago. I didn't 
particularly like the oysters. Let's try Mary's today. And, you know, even it's so uh, famous in that area of the Atlantic that even in Myrtle Beach, they have places called Calabash Seafood. So there's all kinds of places you go. And then you go in there, you look at the menu. They've got a lot more choices than In-N-Out. They've got all kinds of choices of combinations and such. And you look at oysters and you look at, at lobster and you look at uh, shrimp. They call it shrimp over there. You guys call it prawn out here on this coast. I don't know why. I never heard of prawn until I got here. But it looked just like a shrimp, and it tastes like a shrimp, so I call it shrimp. But they have shrimp, and they have all kinds of stuff. So we're looking at the menu. We're sitting in this restaurant, and, and every, every choice just looks so great. You just finally have to nail one that you think is the best. So I looked it down. And I go, oh, I want lobster and filet mignon. That's going to be great. And I dyed it all you know, big for that one. But a certain in-law that I often refer to in my messages, the same one, uh, is about two chairs over and says, wow, Jeff, that looks good. I think I'll have that too. I thought, yeah, that's the standard. That's the way to go. Everybody else order what you want to do. You swap and you try a little bit of that. Filet mignon, lobster. So we're waiting and we're having our beverages and talking. Finally, you know, they bring in those big trays of, I don't know how they put so many plates on them, but they bring them in at this wafting and you're just ready to they put down all the stuff there, and then this certain person over to my left, and we say our prayer, asks me a question. She said, Jeff? Oh, not she. He or she. <laughs> he or she says, Jeff, would you pass the ketchup? And I went, what do you want the ketchup for? He said, I don't want to put it on my steak. I said, No. You are not putting ketchup on something that's pronounced filet mignon. They don't go together. That's my standard. You are not. And this person said, I'm not here to impress anybody. I said, well, you're certainly not impressing me. You are in one way, but not the way you would like to. So I passed the ketchup, and I watched her pour it, and I thought, this is wrong. This is just wrong. It bothered me. See, I had a standard about the way, the correct way to eat that combination. She had a different standard. And I put my standard up against that person's standard. And as she says, I'm not here to impress anyone. I thought, you're not. Well, you see, during the time of Jesus, he constantly challenges us about that type of thinking, the way we do things. He throws a proverbial monkey wrench into our standard, often, and for a reason. There's another story. We've read it several times at this church before, and it, it, it's a good, good passage to be challenged with. It's Luke 10, 38 through 42. You can find it on page uh, 1028 in the Brown Bible, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Here's the story of Jesus. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they're often moving, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. That was nice of her, very hospitable. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. That's really neat. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha. Martha. The Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. 
Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. There's some mystical value in what Mary's doing. Martha doesn't see that. You see, Martha has a standard she believes is correct. She's trying to make the place look neat and elegant. There's these serendipitous guests coming in. Got to get this straightened up. You've had those serendipitous guests come in, and you don't want it to look like a place has been lived in. We're selling our house right now, and we're, we're trying to make it. We want somebody to live in it, so we have to make it look like it's never been lived in before. Kind of an irony. But she's trying to do that. She's just trying to get everything together, make it clean and classy, make it really elegant. But God forbid it be anything other than that. And she even condescends to the anointed one, the Messiah. She condescends to him. And she says, don't you care? In other words, don't you see that my standard here is correct and you should impose it on my sister? Don't you see that? What is better? What is better? Jesus answers that. We often ask ourselves this question, either out loudly or subtly, and our decisions, frankly and honestly, are most often based on our correct standards. Don't you care, Jesus? Look, there's a wine stain on the carpet over there. And Lazarus, he left his bed mat rolled out here. It's not rolled up. Mary should roll that up, get it all straightened out. The foot basin is dirty. All this stuff needs to be done and neat and orderly. Don't you care? And what does Jesus say? He has a very profound sentence in answering Martha. And I went and parsed and looked at all the words he said. You know, I like working with the original languages. And it's really cool what some of those words say because they're relevant. He says this, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. That word many is the Greek word polis. It means crowd. And when Jesus went about it, polis followed him, multitudes. And he's saying, you got a crowd in your head, Martha. There's a crowd going on in your head. And you care, all right. He says you're worried. He uses the word care, a Greek word for care, which if it's in the right direction, it's good. If it's outward or upward, it's good. But he says that care is turned toward yourself. Yeah, you got a crowd in your mind, and you care. And he also says you're troubled. And the word there is therbazo, where we get our word turbulence. There's a lot going on with Martha right here. And she wants to get it all right. She's worried, and she's troubled, and she's got a crowd in her head. Martha decides to multitask in order to have this home be presentable to gifts. But Martha, in making a decision, gives up something. What does she give up? She gives up what Mary's doing. And Mary, likewise, makes a decision when she listens to Jesus. And she is also giving up something, what Martha's doing. And that's what happens to us. Is Mary mad at Martha? Mary, you should listen to these words. No, but Martha's spitting nails. But she thinks she's doing what's best. They both decide. They both make separate decisions. And the same thing happens to them that happens to us when we make decisions. We don't even think about it. Every time we make a decision, we are choosing. And at the same time, we are losing. Every time we make a decision, we are choosing and we are losing. In your outline, we'll have that put up on the board for us. 
morning. Every time you make a decision, you are choosing and you're losing. In other words, when you choose, you're gaining something, right? And when you lose, you're sacrificing something. I don't have to tell you that if, if you're familiar with the stock market. There are all kinds of options, right, aren't there? You make choices and you kind of speculate. And you go, oh, I should have gone that way. Or, yeah, I went the right way. You put aside that which wouldn't be detrimental or you did something that would be vice versa. See, God knows that about us. Anytime we make a decision, there are additions and there are subtractions. We gain something. And we go for that, but we lose something. Martha and Mary are doing the same thing. God knows that about us. He used that to challenge and teach us. He gave us the freedom to make those choices. And he knows this about us, and that's why he challenges us. You know, in short, I, I believe this now. It took me a long time to really believe this, but God does not look down on a person who puts ketchup on filet mignon. Believe it or not, I do. But God doesn't. That's a genuine person. And God doesn't look down on the person sitting at the feet of the Messiah instead of bustling about and creating this pristine environment. We should realize that. Listen again to what we said in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6 just jumps out. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. It doesn't make any logical sense, but that's what he's doing. He's gaining you, and he's sacrificing all those other powerful nations, Egypt and uh, all the Girgashites and Mosquitoites and termites and all those others that he could add. He's putting them aside. And you think people would know that because they were humbly the recipients of such grace and honor to be chosen and treasured that way. You think they learn it, but they go along and they are also influenced by their world. Later on, as they get established there, God is okay with that. That they will learn and be his people. But later on they go, oh, look, that country has a king. And so does that one, that one, that one. That one. We want a king. God says, I'm your king. You don't need a king. God, he said, we want a king. And God and his parental love says, okay, you can have a king. But this is what will happen. And the same thing, we want a temple. They've got a place, a, a building where they meet. We want a temple. You don't need a temple. You've got the tent there. I've, I've revealed my, my word to you. No, okay, all right. You'd think they learn, but they don't. And finally, when God gives them the king, you think they would learn uh, that God uses the simple? Not really. Turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is in the context of them having a king. And the first one that God chose is one that doesn't work out. They said they wanted a king. The guy didn't work out. He said he wouldn't. So God intervenes. But this is how he does it, in an unexpected way. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? For since I have rejected him, as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Where's that? A small little town. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Well, this isn't the plan, Lord. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. 
okay. Samuel did what the Lord said. He gets to this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? They realized he was like one of the last leaders before the king. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Here? Consecrate for yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Who are these people? When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, one of the sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. He looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger 10 years ago. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. I haven't chosen him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. That's your perspective. That's your horizon. But man, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. That's kind of interesting. Remember what we read earlier? Seven nations larger and stronger than you? Seven of his sons. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen him. We thought that he would, but he didn't. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse goes, oh, well, I got the youngest. That little pipsqueak. He's just washing his stinking feet. That's his job. He's like Israel. He's the fewest. Well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed this guy that nobody expected to be the king in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. He went his way. He didn't see what God saw. He saw what he had by his standard. And God chose David. It's the best. It's the better. And it's very often subjective. And we don't see that easily. And how many of us are on this earth? 6.5 billion. Someone said that I said million last service. So make sure I say billion. 6.5 billion people walking around. It kind of gets confusing because there's 6.5 billion standards that have to that people believe are correct. That's what we're that's what we're up against. So what do we need? We need some kind of guidance. We need some kind of direction. This is why we espouse this. We believe this is a divine resource that God gives to us. It challenges us. It tells us things we don't expect. It has, we have experiences ourselves in our own transformation that Samuel, this holy man of God, had, expecting things to be a certain way, the plan to fall in a certain way. God decided to say, those are not my standards. And we just continually discover things in here. And this is the most important thing we discover when we learn this together and read it in devotions and small groups. There's only one correct standard. There's only one. And I'm challenged by that in my life daily. I have my standards, and God says, no, these are my standards. No, they can't be, Lord. They just don't look the way I want them to look. They should be a little bit like mine. And then I'll go your way, God. No, I have one correct standard. 
And we read in Isaiah, a passage that is read over and over, that the value of this passage strikes home for me and for us every time. It's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says to us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How mysterious this passage is. How often repeated it is. Hopefully you've heard this before. It's something that I have to hear over and over again when I have my ways and my thoughts and I think the correct standards that need to go away even though I'm considering God. This is the way we should go, God. God says, nope. The difference is where the earth is and where eternity is. That's a long way, isn't it? How far is eternity? And it's so puzzling and mystical. How can we discover that? How can we discover this puzzle of God's will, His ways? Well, the only way I can liken it to is a puzzle. Remember the Rubik's Cube? Very intricate puzzle. It just looks simple. It's a cube. But when you get that thing, you, aren't we strange? We get this thing, it's got all the colors on one side, then we undo it, see if we can do it again. To get it right. And what's the standard of a Rubik's Cube once you undo it? What's the standard? To get all the colors on the same side. Now, that sounds like segregation to me. But that's the standard we have. It's all messed up. We need to unmess it up. And that's our standard. We say, here, God, how would you do this? And God wouldn't do it that way. And we would be, you know, smug enough to say, no, it should be that way. Red should be on one side. Yellow should be on one side. Blue on one side. God might come up with something like this. Like this. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. There's one correct answer in the Rubik's Cube and 43 quintillion wrong ones. That kind of puts a little light on 6.5 billion, doesn't it? That's not very many. But God might do something like this. You know, put his initials on it. Y-H-W-H. His name. And we would be smug enough to say, no, all the colors need to be on one side. That looks messed up to us, doesn't it? It doesn't look right. But God has a certain standard and a way that we don't even imagine being the right way because we've got our standards that we think are correct and we have to follow. It's subjective. God has given us freedom, but we are bound to sometimes being subjective. We put our standards against God and what is best and what is better is often turned inward by our own perspective. That makes Martha dare to ask Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? There's only one correct standard. But how do we discover that? It's so puzzling. We have a little help. We have a story in the first part of the gospel of God coming down to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he walks about telling us about the one correct standard. He teaches us a thing called the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. It's not like this kingdom. It's not like the rain that we see elsewhere in our horizontal perspective. It's different. And we are transformed and changed inside because of what Christ came to teach us. And he uses parables and similes. And if you have ears to hear, listen and hear. It's like a mustard seed. You guys see this mustard seed? It's little. Yeah, see this little grouse pig. Oh, I think I'm starting to get it. It's like this. It's like that. He keeps doing that. 
Because we have no idea about God's thoughts and God's ways and His reign. And we're transformed and changed and things are often reversed in value. Paul discovers that himself. He was great and famous and he had all kinds of attention toward him. And God blinded him. And he learned along the way of his road of transformation, that principle. And he says these words in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. God shows the foolish things of the world. What are the foolish things of the world? We need to ask ourselves that. To shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What are the weak things of the world? What are the strong things? Our standards tell us. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast. It's a verbal form of best before I ask you to bow your heads. I want to ask a few questions for you and for myself. Is there a crowd in your soul? Is there a multitude of things in your head? Are you trying to take on too much, trying to find what is better in this life? And is it all necessary? Is it all necessary? How about the standards we use? What am I using to make decisions? Is it correct? Is it correct for you? Does it line up with what God is trying to say about his reign in my life or in your life? It's interesting that Christ talks a lot more about subtraction than he does addition. Because we don't need much more than what he's already added to our lives in order to be fulfilled. They crowd our minds and our devotion. I pray that we're challenged to hear Jesus and discover what he really means when he says unapologetically, that the first will be last and the last will be first. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up a cross and follow me. Do we know what that means? If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to lose your life, you'll save it. What do we gain if we get the whole world and forfeit ourselves? Jesus called us to live a life in service to him, and it is a life of sacrifice. Lord God, we pray to you and we ask that we would be challenged this morning. Especially to be of service for you in the next several weeks. As we look to having our faith being put to action. You tell your own followers early that they look to the Gentiles and they see all kinds of authority and prestige and fame. And he says, not so with you. Whoever wants to become great has got to be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. We pray, Lord, that we'll be able to meet this challenge and be stretched by your transforming in us so that your reign in our lives can be seen by others and they will glorify you, that they'll see the high value you place on things that we would not treasure normally. We pray this for your sake and your cause. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.